Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Connor Burt is the president and COO at Lessonly. He serves all of Lessonly's go-to-market teams and has been responsible for growing Lessonly from zero to 750 clients and over 2 million learners. As a first-time entrepreneur, he used his prior adventures at Exact Target and a background in Division I college athletics as a coach and player to guide his philosophies around building worldwide teams. So Connor, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to um, to learning from you and listening to you. It's, I, I think you and I talked offline a while ago when we were setting this up that I met um, your co-founder and CEO, Max, at an event. Yeah. Got to be seven or eight years ago now. Um, maybe it was 2000, I think it was 2014. So maybe five years ago, I guess I met him. And I think you had like five employees. And I was like, what is, <laughs> you know, what a cute little company. And <laughs> you guys are going to get destroyed in this space because, you know, there are big boys in it, but you guys have absolutely crushed it. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Hey, you, you weren't the only one. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure we had those thoughts early on as well. Uh, but keep trucking along and eventually things start to work out. So, so tell us so everybody's clear what Lessonly is, because I, I know and you know, but just anyone who's listening who hasn't heard of you yet, um, what it is and how the business model works. And then we'll kind of go back to the beginning. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so Lessonly, uh, we have the privilege of helping uh, primarily sales and customer service teams uh, do better work with our training software. So the idea is you think about a new or an existing seller or a support agent, these customer facing teams that are interacting with brands every day uh, tend to be the hardest to train in an organization. And so we've purpose built Lessonly uh, to ultimately serve that, that need. Uh, and it really boils down to helping the organization drive both learning and then practice so that when those customer facing teams are in action, they're performing at their highest levels. That's, I think that's the, cre- the, the, the kind of critical niche then too, isn't it? The, the sales and customer service teams. Because even when I was first exposed to it, I thought it was really online learning or an LMS for everybody. But that is yeah. kind of like everybody else, isn't it? That is exactly like everybody else. And there's probably 500 of those, maybe 600 now. When we started, there was 507 years ago. So I'm sure there's more. But yeah, it's a big market. Uh, there's a lot of space for a lot of different folks. And you know, the way we saw it is early on, we took a very wide approach. And what we learned pretty quickly is if we're going to drive value to the organization, uh, it happens when a salesperson is getting better, a support person is getting better, and their CSAT scores are going up. And we can kind of show tangible ROI and value. Um, and the training burden is much higher, right? As, as you think about our business, typically an HR function in a business is running training, you know, maybe quarterly, biannually in terms of compliance, maybe some manager training, but a sales or a support person needs training every day. And so we get a lot better usage and engagement with the tool and, and ultimately hopefully a, a bigger impact. And is that the core of your model then that they are getting trained every day, like the 15 minute, half hour training a day? Yeah, definitely. We, we focus kind of micro uh, in, in length when it comes to training. I, I think I'd be uh, ambitious if I said teams are training every single day, but definitely like the weekly at the very least monthly basis, uh, we're seeing training happening in Lessonly. And, and we've really started to move also into, uh, you know, more contextual training. So we have a Chrome extension essentially that follows a learner around the web that says, hey, you might be in the middle of logging something in Salesforce, Mr. and Mrs. Seller. Uh, here's a helpful lesson that might help you on this deal, right? So it's, it's not just like set aside training time. It's also in the course of your day-to-day interactions, interjecting 10-minute tr- lessons into that. So is that plugging AI into this then as well or... Uh, it's, it's not quite, I wouldn't call it AI yet. Uh, but, uh, definitely there's some recommendations components, really simple, uh, stuff as well as like a program owner saying, Hey, I know in Salesforce when this is happening, uh, this is a good lesson maybe to recommend. So it's not quite to AI, but, uh, recommendations is recommendations. That's super cool. All right. So back us up, take us back to the beginning, how you and Connor got together and how you um, decided to build this thing. Yeah, we uh, we were actually roommates. We uh, yeah, yeah. both, and- yeah, no. Max and I. Yeah, uh, we were actually roommates. Uh, we're based out of Indianapolis, Indiana, which which you don't always hear, but some incredible companies have been grown here. Uh, Exact Target being our our best and and brightest. 
Uh, and, and very early days, uh, Max and I were living together uh, and he had uh, kind of this inkling of something in the learning space needs to be done. I was his roommate at the time. I was working at a startup that got acquired by Exact Target, and, and kind of serendipitously, my job uh, kind of became training. I was a sales rep, uh, but I was one of three people who really understood the product we were selling. So uh, at the time, Exact Target said, hey, you're 24 years old. Uh, you've got no commitments. Uh, we're going to send you around the world to essentially enable our thousand salespeople on this new product we just purchased. Um, and with Max in an effort to one of our kind of early beta customers was Exact Target because I was in Australia for two months. I was in London and really my only job was to train. So we took the MVP of the product and I took it into, you know, my role there and, and said, hey, instead of me doing all this traveling and sitting you in a conference room that nobody's paying attention, really just trying to close deals, uh, I'm just going to send you a 10 minute lesson on this. Uh, and then I'm going to go co-sell with you as, as we go along. And that was kind of the point for me at which, I mean, I love Max. We're best friends. I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. Uh, but that was the point for me at which I figured, okay, if there's a problem for a big company like Exact Target, there's got to be one for others. Uh, and that was enough for us to kind of join forces and really try to make it happen. All right. So you figured out the, the need for it, saw that you guys could do this thing together. How did you divide and conquer the roles? I, it was honestly uh, a bit luck that it just so happens. Max is very much a product mind, uh, not necessarily like a CTO type person, but very focused on design, um, loves getting into the weeds of product. And I was more focused on the revenue side. So from the beginning, day one of the business, it was kind of like, you go focus on the revenue side of the business. I'll go focus on product and talent and culture and growing the team. Um, and, and so that was really it. And, and it's kind of stayed that way since. That's super cool. So you guys are very similar in a way in the setup to what Tobias and Harley did at Shopify, where Tobias, yep. the CEO, was very inward product facing and Harley was very outward facing biz dev sales and marketing. Yeah. yeah. And, and the one unique twist I think for us is Max definitely serves as kind of the face of Lessonly. I mean, you see his, uh, you know, he is inwardly focused on talent. He is inwardly focused on product, but we just launched uh, as a company, Max wrote it, a book called Do Better Work. It's kind of the mission of the company. Um, and, and so he's out there on the road doing speaking events, uh, some really cool ones, whether that's with customers or events and promoting uh, his book now that uh, we were proud got to like an Amazon list bestseller. Um, so he's definitely kind of the, if you will, figurehead of the company. And, and I tend to be inwardly focused uh, in, in some ways and more focused on like customer interactions. Uh, so maybe that's the, the one tweak I would say is maybe unique for us. I'm not really sure. We haven't seen too many examples, but um, yeah, he, he does great at that stuff. So to walk us through your org chart, how does the company look today and set up and scope? And then we'll get into kind of some of the weeds with you. Yeah, so we've got, uh, we're going on about 150 folks, uh, big go-to-market teams. So we've got a lot of those folks about, uh, I think we're up to about 50 now in the uh, sales org, and that includes SDRs, AEs, and we have a new enterprise segment. Uh, we've got a post-sales team uh, that's growing as that new business team is growing. Uh, so that's about uh, 20. Uh, we've got a 30-person product team, a 10-person marketing team, um, and essentially have functional leaders across most of those. We have a revenue operations team that kind of keeps everything intact. Um, and so, so I'd say pretty typical, uh, fairly growing services organization as well. Uh, and then kind of an executive layer, if you will, of seven uh, with basically each functional leader involved. So VP of CX, of HR, of product, of revenue operations, and of marketing. Nice. And who reports to you and who reports to Max? How yeah, so I take all the revenue side of the thing. So CX, sales, uh, partnerships, um, and then Max takes HR product. Um, and we kind of share, honestly, like revenue ops. I tend to work a lot with them. Um, and you know, it's kind of a shared responsibility between us. Okay. Um, so all of your employees, are they all in the Midwest? Are they, uh, any of them remote, any of them overseas? Yeah, we've, we've grown, uh, we've got some, a few satellite offices. We started to grow a small team in Denver, um, and, and then we've got a few scattered folks, but for the most part, we've grown the business in Indianapolis. We've, uh, honestly, Cameron, uh, you know, there's a lot going on here. I think it's an underappreciated city, uh, and, and we love it here. So we've 
have found no shortage of talent, to be honest, is what a lot of people complain about. Uh, we've actually had a, a pretty good time finding people here. And, and in terms of like the capital requirements to grow a business, we just feel very fortunate. Uh, the Indianapolis market is very different. I, I can't imagine uh, what it's like to grow a business out west or out east, uh, you know, from a capital perspective, because uh, it's just night and day difference, probably 30 to 40% less expensive for us to grow people here. For, for the, the cost, <clears throat> excuse me, the cost of talent? Or the cost of talent, yeah. yeah. And, and even, I mean, that spans to like office space and everything else. I mean, it's just operating capital less is needed, which is great. So do you think more companies just aren't actually trying? Like, are they making an excuse that you need to be in the Bay Area or you need to be around VCs or you need to be around the technology hub cities? Like, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think it is a tight knit community. So it'd be really hard for someone to just come in uh, and necessarily like plant roots here if they're not from here. So I think that might be part of it. Um, you know, I think the other part, Definitely is what you're saying is a bit of a belief that access to capital is tough, which, which is definitely true. Um, you know, there's not, we're not swimming in venture capital, although it's growing. Um, but, but in my mind, I think it's easier to go on a roadshow, uh, raise some capital. We raised uh, from an investor out of Boston called Openview Ventures. Like, I think it's easier to go on a roadshow and do that for a couple of weeks uh, than it is to like plant there and grow a more expensive business. But uh, that that's just one person's perspective, but we we love it. So, how much have you guys raised to date, and what's the what's the future? Where are you taking the company? Yeah, we've raised about fourteen million to date, um, and that's through a Series B. So, so pretty light on capital, and that's just a couple of rounds. Actually, three a seed, and then an A and a B. Um, you know, and 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 we're actually at the point where we're uh, in a cool position where we're kind of controlling our own destiny with some optionality. Um, so we're in that phase right now where we're getting to a point where we actually have kind of a choice. It's kind of like, which route do we want to go here? Uh, we can run the business, continue growing it really fast without additional capital. We're also thinking about what would we do with that additional capital to maybe go faster. Um, so those decisions are honestly kind of behind closed doors being figured out right now, but it's a really exciting chapter and we're fortunate to be in that spot where we're not in a, uh, you know, crunch to go figure either of those options out. We're really just trying to make sure we're just building solid business that has that optionality right now. And what's, what's the long-term plan? Are you going to try to take the company public? Are you just going to continue to grow? Or is it a strategic exit or just continue to build an amazing company? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the last one right now. Um, I, I don't think like, I don't think we're close enough to like actually seeing what an IPO would look like to be thinking about that. Uh, while we've made great traction, it's not what we wake up thinking about. I think definitely let's build an excellent company. And I, th I think we're just at every stage, we, you know, Max and I have, you know, as we reflect on every stage, it's just been so different at every stage that for us, it's a blast. And now that we've got about 150 people and we can kind of see the culture changing and forming and the momentum and the people getting fired up every day coming to work. Uh, that's been our focus because when that's in the business, it's not always there. Uh, it, it just feels uh, like, man, this is this is fun. This is challenging, but it's fun. Uh, and as long as that keeps happening and we're growing a, a great business, uh, figure the rest will take care of itself. So you mentioned something that people come in and they're just kind of fired up. And I heard Herb Kelleher was asked years ago, how do you get all your employees to smile like that? And he said, we don't, we just hire smiley people. Mm -hmm. so I don't think you get people fired up. I think you hire people that are fired up. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the key things, I mean, especially in the sales org we look for is, yeah, it, are people fired up about something, right? So, you know, an interview question is like, what fires you up outside of working, you know, or outside of work? And you can always tell if, you know, somebody goes on a rant about this very, you know, exciting thing to them. That's a great sign that it's just one of those people that sees things with a glass half full. Um, and I think you're right. As you get more of those, like the people that may not quite be that way almost have no choice but to to uh, kind of fall in line with that. I think there are some things we do or try to do very um, intentionally to encourage that type of mentality. One of them, we, make, we, we actually made a core value this year, which is um, uh, highlight what's working uh, is the core value. Uh, and, and the reason we did that was we read, uh, you know, and give this book to everyone. It's a book on appreciative inquiry. Uh, I'm also, um, I went to school at Butler, a huge Brad Stevens fan. He always recommends a book called Soar With Your Strengths. And the idea ultimately of all of it is 
let's highlight what's working so that we can do more of it. I think too often in these like high growth businesses, there, there's plenty of things not going well. Uh, and when you choose to focus your attention just on those, you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, and you also lose an opportunity to say, hey, this actually, this area of the business is going really well. Let's actually do more of that. And I think the de facto stance is like, let's go fix the things that are broken. Uh, but sometimes you don't have to be great at everything. Like, let's be great at the things we're really good at and double down on those. And I think that mentality has helped us uh, kind of keep that, I mean, smile coming in the door, if you want to call it, or positive mindset, um, putting it on the wall as a core value and really living into that and, and ultimately like modeling that has helped us uh, encourage that type of environment. I love that. I love that kind of specific thing that you're looking for, which is that they're really passionate about something like yeah. if they're deep passion about something. Then you know that can transfer, transfer over if you can ignite it. So you mentioned the, the appreciative inquiry. <clears throat> you guys were either of you guys part of the Cutco organization in school? We weren't. We, weren't. we actually just, I, I think I can say this. We signed them on as a client just recently though, randomly like yesterday. That's, Awesome. Um, it's funny because there's, there's a, a big movement with a bunch of guys that I know that have been at Cutco years ago. Um, Hal, Hal Elrod, who was uh, my co-author with the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, and then John Rulin, who's coming from the Midwest. And there's a whole group of them that are part of this whole appreciative inquiry movement. Mm. So, I don't have to get that. I, I knew nothing about it outside of the book. It'd be great to study up on that or get connected with the them. Book? Do you remember? What's that? Do you remember who the author that was? Uh, I'll tell you in a sec. I got the book laying around. That's okay. I, I, I think it may be a guy who worked with, um, within the Cutco organization and then now helps companies kind of understand, give us the, the kind of helicopter tour of what the appreciative inquiry is. Cause you and I know, but not a bunch of others may not. Yeah. I mean, at, at its core, it is about, um, you know, a, a tactic ultimately to like philosophically dig into uh, what's working. And that doesn't mean, uh, you know, I think the, the misconception maybe is like, it's this like Tony Robbins, always be positive type of thing. Um, but it's really just take a perspective and ask questions uh, to see uh, what's going well. So for example, um, you know, Max and I might be talking about, uh, something and one of us, like Max brings to me this, this really troubling thing. Uh, it, it might be a simple question of, uh, framing that in, in a much more, uh, like holistic view. Like how often does this happen? Uh, how impactful is this really? And ultimately we get to the point where it's like, Hey, this is an isolated incident. There's all these other things going well. Let's go fix it, but let's not lose sight of the bigger picture uh, is the best way I can think about it. And I'm sure that's not doing justice to the entire, uh, it's not an abstract of the book necessarily, but that's the big idea. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it for sure. I was at a, uh, an event related to Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning and um, he had a bunch of his raving fans, probably about 150 of these raving fans from the Miracle Morning community. And they were all doing this two-day appreciative inquiry, kind of deep dive into what the Miracle Morning could be going mm. forward. And he kept getting all these ideas from the group and breaking the group off into subgroups. And they decided amongst themselves how they were going to fuel this whole movement and it was mm. crazy like sitting back i'm like whoa like the ceo is not even telling anybody what to do is and his employees aren't even the ones doing it it's his raving fans that are the ones that are yeah and all the stuff that they're excited about and where it can go it's pretty cool that's awesome what yeah. can i ask what what is the miracle morning I, i've heard of that i've yeah, so the Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, Hal Elrod, Hal Elrod and I co-authored that together. Um, he, he wrote the original Miracle Morning book around six morning success habits to kind of, mm. uh, he, he looked at all the most successful people on the planet and what they were doing and tried to net it out. Um, and he came up with what he calls the six morning savers. And the first one is silence. The first mm. S is just waking up and giving yourself a moment of silence in the morning to just let the day kind of come in. So I sleep with my blinds open so that when I wake up, I just see the natural light in the mountains and the mm. ocean kind of coming right into my room right away. And the next one is affirmations. And your A is just kind of giving yourself a morning statement that you will repeat to yourself until it starts feeling more and more true. Mm -hmm. And you have your visualization, which might be reading your vivid vision or part of your vivid vision or part of your, you know, your plan for yourself. Mm -hmm. 
uh, reading through that visualization than some kind of morning exercise. I mm -hmm. suck at that. I prefer <laughs> in the afternoon. I actually like to do my exercise at the end of my work day and before I move into the rest of my personal day. Mm. But there is some value to, to certainly getting the blood flowing and doing yeah. even kind of a seven minute workout first thing in the morning or some burpees or something to get going. Um, so I finish my showers with a cold shower and I call that exercise. It sucks enough. <laughs> And the uh, the R is reading and just giving yourself five to 15 minutes of morning reading. And that also includes listening to an audio book as much as reading with your eyes. There's a lot of value for people that have struggled to read but are absorbing content from listening. Mm -hmm. The last S is um, scribing, which is writing and just that's journaling, doing a five minute journal or, you know, getting your thoughts out of your head. So those six morning savers are the core of the miracle morning. Nice. I like it. Well, yeah. I'm about 50%. So I got some work to do. Right. Well, I'm sure you've got a bunch on your own as well. <laughs> um, so, so walk us through the, the culture side. What else do you guys do to, uh, to drive into fuel culture? Because I think the media has mm -hmm. done us a disservice pretending that culture is about the free massage and the free lunches. And that's mm -hmm. really not what culture is all about at all. That's totally true. It's funny how, you know, um, we've been, we've been fortunate online to get some decent reviews, whether that's employees or, you know, people do our research on Lessonly and they're coming into an interview. And one of the first things like, Hey, what, you know, what got you interested in Lessonly? It's always like, well, it's the culture. And the follow-up question is like, well, how, how do you know what, like, what do you know about our culture? You know? And most of the time it's, I read the reviews online and I saw the free LaCroix and the snacks and stuff just seems like a good vibe type of answer. And usually that's like a, a big red X for me. And unless they've really like talked to someone, know people in the business, or you can't really know it until you're involved. So I totally agree with you. Um, there's, there's probably a number of things. I mean, I'll, I'll promote uh, Max's book. I don't know if we're going to be on video it's called Do Better Work. We've got them everywhere. But, I'll you know, we've made sure. these things uh, because we, you know, we get this question a lot. Um, um, and, and, you know, I think the, the one maybe I'd share with you that, that, I think has been really helpful from my perspective that I've learned over the last seven years is um, I think we really promote a culture that leaders don't need to know the answer, mm -hmm. um, you know, which ultimately I think leads to like a spirit of vulnerability that, that everybody talks about. And it might be an interesting way to get to vulnerability, but I think what we do pretty well as a, as an organization starting, you know, bottom up and top down is, um, just the, the humility, and maybe this is a Midwest thing, but uh, we, we don't have many egos. And oftentimes, if a leader doesn't know the answer, that's okay. Um, and, and what that I think leads to as an organization, uh, from a culture perspective, is we get closer to, if you think about like, we, we draw this Venn diagram, there's kind of what the business needs. And there's another circle that is what actually gets done. Uh, and if leaders are acting like they know every answer, oftentimes what's getting done uh, doesn't overlap very much with what is actually needed in the organization. And so we really try to get that like golden, so those two golden circles to overlap. Uh, and I think one of the greatest ways from perspective to do that is, is be vulnerable. And when we don't know answers or we don't know where to go next or we don't know what the next turn is, uh, we ask a lot of questions, we get a lot of feedback. Uh, and ultimately that leads to everyone in an organization doing the same thing. And I think we end up in better spots and people feel a lot more autonomy uh, in the path we're going down because of that. That's great. Yeah, we were actually just speaking about that at our um, COO Alliance event last month. We were talking about how leaders should be the last one to speak at the table. When yeah. you ask a question, so often the CEO or the COO wants to chime in right away to give the answer, but the answer is often in the room. Yeah. If, and our job is to grow people, not to give them the answer all the time. And if we're going to grow them, it means to let them give the answer. And often they're either going to be right or it'll be better than ours, or it'll give them the confidence to speak, right? But if we're always the ones speaking first, it never comes out. You're, you're totally right. You're totally right. How about on the interviewing side and the recruiting side? What are you doing? I know that you said that in Indianapolis, it's, um, it's been great for you as a recruiting pool. And you guys are starting to become one of the big names in that market too, aren't you? Yeah, that definitely helps. We've, we've definitely hit a bit of an inflection point where, you know, at least nearby and hopefully outside of nearby, people know who we are. So that definitely doesn't hurt. Um, the the what, two things I... Sorry. Let's go, go back to maybe when you were 20 to 50 employees or 50 to 50 to 100 employees. What were you doing at that point to attract mm. and recruit the people then? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, honestly, uh, brute force referrals uh, was was one of the best ways to to describe it. I think, um, and taking risks on people with non traditional backgrounds were the two strategies. So, you know, for example, in the sales org, the first four salespeople I hired, none of them had SaaS or technology experience. Only two of them had any selling experience. So we were hiring on potential, um, and figured we could grow that. So early days, that was really the strategy. And then bringing in referral networks from there. Um, as we've grown, we've gotten a bit more scientific about this um, in terms of getting really clear about what we're looking for and what we're not looking for in a role because we've hired you know more and more people and we can see. One of the tools we use to do that is called Predictive Index. Uh, we use that early on in our interview process. It, it ultimately predicts what Um, kind of environment is going to be driving for the person. So for example, in a sales role, we look for uh, what's called low patience. So somebody has a lot of high urgency um, and somebody who is ultimately a little bit lower on the formality side, like willing to not get it perfect. And then high on the extroversion side, they draw energy from people and interactions. And that profile, we can basically stamp out very early. And it's not a tarot card, but it definitely helps. So that's that's kind of one thing we've done as a tool as we've grown, as we've gotten more scientific about it. No, that's a tarot card. You, you guys are starting to actually really understand the core behavioral traits that make some of these roles tick. It's, it's interesting that a great salesperson will never make it through an HR screening process. Yep. Because HR people hate salespeople. Yep. People make it up on the fly. They're winging it. They shoot. <laughs> right? too, their energy is too high. They don't follow yeah. any of the systems. And HR is all about, no, we have a process. We have to follow it and we have to stay straight. And we have like, dude, that doesn't work in the sales process at all. Yeah. 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 You're totally right. And, and so we've done that. The other thing I'd say, yeah, that that's kind of part A. Part B is getting, throwing them into real scenarios. So in sales, that's role playing. Mm. A product that's actually like engineering tests um, and things of that nature. Uh, we've just gotten a lot more practical about like speed to hire has become important. And what we were doing in 20 to 50 was a series of conversations over beers and eventually we'll try to suss out a gut feel about you. Uh, and now, you know, it's like, hey, we want to get to a decision both for us, for the candidate as well. Um, and I think like practically here's a job challenge that we want you to, to take on has been more illuminating than anything else, any question or any kind of answer you could kind of talk your way around. Now you guys are also at a stage now where you've at some point had to have hired some mid to senior level people mm. over top of people yeah. that have been there for the original time, right? Like some of the yeah. that were there, you've had to hire above them. How did you do that? Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll tell couple of stories. I mean, I think we've done it a number of times. I think our first uh, head of market, he was the third person we hired and I begged him to come onto the team. I said, I I remember the sales pitch. He was at a big company making a ton of money. He was taking like a 60% pay cut. And I was just like, my sales pitch was essentially, Hey man, when you're 80, what are you going to remember? And that's what got him to come on board uh, amongst other things. And uh, you know, he was with us from the very beginning, Mitch Causey. Uh, and, and, you know, Mitch always had ambitions to kind of go off and do his own thing. So Mitch spent five years with us and about four, three and a half, four in, uh, we kind of worked together and he ultimately kind of, it was just, it was, he was incredible about it. He said, Hey, uh, I feel like it's time. And we felt like it was time to really think about, uh, VP of marketing. Um, and the way Mitch approached it was, man, if you get the right person and I trust you guys to get the right person. Uh, I'm going to learn so much and it's going to build my career for the next thing I want to do, which is ultimately start an agency. Uh, and so it was kind of like there was that side of it for him that he saw that we had, you know, kind of worked through with him. Doesn't mean it wasn't painful conversations. And we got a guy named Kyle Lacey um, who has really just been incredible accelerant to the business. Uh, and because uh, Mitch was so open to that, uh, it was it was just it was perfect. So Mitch spent, you know, a year and a half, two years under his wing. And then we got to the point where Mitch was like, Hey, I'm ready to start my own business. He gave us six months notice and we had a big party when he left. So, you know, that, that worked out just incredible. But I think it was almost like Mitch Causey, the guy in the seat before Kyle came in, Mm -hmm. um, just an incredible human being to have that humility and, and take that perspective. 
I don't know how you do it if you don't have that type of uh, mentality of the person that you're kind of bringing over the top, if you will. I'll tell you, you've, you just touched on a couple of big things. One was that, that phrase that you used that I think is almost gold. And it is the, you know, what are you going to remember when you're 80 years old? Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> do you really want to just do that corporate gig or, or do you want to right. be special? Uh, and then just like shutting up the pregnant pause and let them sell themselves. Right. Cause you don't have to sell the company at all at that point. You're just selling right. emotional, the, the, the feeling of desire to want to do something better, um, yeah. which most people will never get a chance to do. Right. <clears throat> the, the second one was the, um, when you have that senior person that wants to go off and do their own thing, you didn't try to hold them back. It's almost like raising a kid. Our job as parents is to raise the kids so that they leave the house and go to college and do their own thing. We can't keep them under our house forever. That's right. <laughs> That's a great enough. That's a great analogy. I, I think about it like, and, and this has kind of been a driving factor and motivation for Max and I. It's like, hey, people are going to work forever, you know, long part of their lives. Like if we can give you a working chapter, whatever that chapter is, that is memorable that you're going to look back on and be like, man, that was great. Like mission accomplished. And whether that's two years or whether that's 10 years, um, you know, then, then our job has, has been accomplished and hopefully it leads you to the next thing that, you know, allows you to get a little bit closer and explore what you really want to be doing. If this is right. And, and then it's that celebration of that when he's off doing his own thing and you help celebrate that with the party leaving. Uh, did you take a percentage of his company when you helped him sprout his wings? <laughs> we didn't. We actually became uh, his first client. So we uh, started a marketing design agency and, and he, I'm sure he gave us a favorable rate. I'm not sure. Uh, but he's think, too good not to hire. So we actually uh, ended up being his first client, which we were glad to do. I will bet that there is a huge opportunity for cult-like companies like yours to help their employees go off and become their own entrepreneurs and take 10% equity positions in their company, mm. become an, an early stage client, <laughs> an early stage advisor, yeah. and help them spread their wings. And I'll bet you, you can get, because the reality is a lot of, especially Gen Y, right? Like when, mm. when I grew up, running your own company was evil. You know, you yeah. were centric you were greedy you were a capitalist like even my aunts and uncles thought that i was this weird kid for wanting to <laughs> nowadays running a business is cool right running a business of being on is a cool thing so i think there might be an opportunity there for companies to help and <laughs> wise start their own and become an entrepreneurial incubator of their own people that's amazing i have met, that's a great idea. you should totally make that happen i, I think that's that. the espresso kicking in it's just this random weird idea <laughs> um all right. So, so walk us through some of the operational stuff. You know, obviously you guys have had an easy run in, in terms of the five, how many years have you been running now? Seven? Seven. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to say that it's been an easy ride from zero to 150, but clearly it hasn't been. So. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> give, us, give us a couple of the big struggles, the lessons from the edge when, did you ever almost lose the company? No, fortunately we have not been in that boat. Um, right. How about a big, like a big, holy shit moment? Like, oh my God, you know, losing sleep for a couple months or what were the big, what were the big things? What did you guys screw up or the, the big lessons? Yeah, we've been fortunate to ha not have any catastrophic ones. Um, I I'll share some of the ones that I remember that like at the time felt like the world was falling down. Right. Um, one that comes to mind. They're never as bad, right? At the time. Yeah, it, true. You're totally right. Um, well, I, I just, I remember this one where, we were having, we used to run like a free trial business and as a strategic initiative, we were always trying to get this free trial conversion rate up, right? And so one of our strategies was to, to hire someone who was maybe over-experienced for like an inbound SDR role, but really help us kind of figure this out. So we hired someone, they're off and running it, we figured they had the right experience to do this and we wake up one day and we realize, I don't remember the exact time frame. But actually, our director of marketing we were just talking about was, you know, digging into some reporting or Salesforce or something and realized that for six months, we hadn't followed up with our basically our A highest score leads. No follow up whatsoever. No calls, no emails. And um, I about, I, I mean, obviously, Max was fired up. I was fired up. Like, it was one of those moments where we'd been talking to the board about improving this trial conversion rate. Uh, here's our strategy. We go to do it. And we had missed, uh, that we weren't calling literally the best leads in the pot basically. Um, so yeah, like in the grand scheme, not bad, but, uh, in that moment it felt like, Oh my God, like we are going 
no, like what are we doing? Um, so how did you uncover that? I was our director of marketing. He was digging into the reporting. I, I don't even know. I think it was just like looked at a lead record that was a really good lead from like a big brand you would recognize and like, wow, we haven't called this one yet. And then he looked at the next one. And he's like, wow, we haven't called that one yet. Um, and somehow over the six months, we didn't see like the conversion rate was just flat. So we really didn't, the high level metric, we, it didn't drastically go down or up, which was weird. Um, but maybe there was a lag time in that because it takes some time to close the deal. So I think we were, we were looking at the wrong things and somebody ended up just drilling down the levels deeper they needed to and realized it. Um, but I will say we, we've been, you know, so we've got a board of Scott Dorsey, who is the CEO of exact target, Mike Fitzgerald, uh, also key exact target, great mentors in the business. And, and one of the things Scott Dorsey is incredibly good at every time we call him with something like this, uh, that, that I've kind of picked up just by his modeling is, is in the moment of something like that happening, he's so good at kind of pushing emotion aside, like, Hey, what's happened has happened. What are our next best alternatives from here? Uh, and eventually he'll come back and address the situation. Uh, but for kind of things in the moment that are like seem mission critical, we got to act quickly. Um, he's so good at staying calm and saying, let's, let's talk about the next alternatives from here. And then a week or two weeks later, let's come back and address what the problem was. But in the moment, uh, I've, I've never seen anyone as good as him at, at helping us through those things. Yeah. Scott Dorsey's really done a pretty amazing job, both with exact target and then kind of the portfolio companies he's kind of helping to steer right now or involved in. Does he get actively involved in the business as a board member? He does, you know, he, man, he's, um, he's on not that many boards to be honest with you. So we feel very lucky. He's on, um, a publicly traded board at uh, plural site, which is a great, cool experience that he has there. Uh, and then a few others outside of lesson lane, but he, I think, you know, when Scott commits to something, he commits to it. Right. So, um, it's the type of board member who's, who's not hovering over us and asking us a ton of questions day to day, but in those moments where it's like, Hey, we really need you. We had one this last week and uh, he's on the phone, you know, seven o'clock at night helping us troubleshoot. It's interesting. I, I think back to when you were talking about that, the whole, like you weren't even phoning your top sales leads and, and how that um, was almost like, how, how could we have not been? Yeah. I heard, I heard a saying years ago that was inspect what you expect. Mm, and that yes. as a leadership team, you know, we, ex of course we'd be calling our top leads. Well, yep. maybe we should look at that. And, or of course we treat our customers. Maybe we should look at that. And I think that's something I need to even do more now with the, the CEO Alliance and the company I'm building, but even some of the CEOs that I'm coaching is really to get them to dive in and look, because it's amazing how often, um, stuff isn't actually getting done. Yeah, you're totally right. And, um, yeah, it's a muscle personally I've had to build because, you know, I tend to be the, uh, you know, less detail oriented type. And, um, you know, it, it, it has been a le hard lesson to learn over time. But the other one I would say that I, actually uh, another core value we have here that, that because of things like this, we've realized is, um, it, it's so important to get agreements amongst people. Uh, and that's very different than expectations. So, uh, in this case, for example, my expectation was you're calling the best leads, uh, but I never said that. Right. Uh, and I never had uh that uh, you know, agreement of like, Hey, let's, let's pound fists. Like we're walking out of here doing this. And so we've, we've gotten a lot better kind of in across the organization, uh, and try to model this, uh, you know, from Max and I seat. Um, it, it's like, Hey, let's, let's not just keep assuming things and expecting things of each other. Let's get agreements and, and let's not like, let's negotiate the agreement. It doesn't have to be like, Hey, Connor told me to do this. So I'm going to go do it. It's like, hey, can we get an agreement on this and let's negotiate what the agreement is and then we're both bought into it and then we both end up in a much better spot. Yeah, I like that whole agreement component to it. It almost ties into the old, the military um, used to have a, a mantra of plan, brief, execute, debrief. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the agreement part would probably come in on the plan and briefing component. Yep. So then, then we go execute and then the leadership team can kind of circle back and debrief on it. That, yeah, it's great. I love that. Okay, you, you just touched on something else. You said there were two things. Core values was one. What was the second part that you mentioned? Because I had a thought and then I just lost it. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, core value. I know you, what are your core values and how many have you got? You guys, because you've rattled off a couple that are really succinct. Yeah, so highlight what's working, um, get agreements, uh, ask clarity. 
questions uh, is one. So that's all about, you know, again, kind of in, in the spirit of, of um, not assuming things, uh, but, but really asking clarifying questions in the spirit of like, let's really get to the root of this. So that can be as simple as, hey, we're having a meeting, like what's the goal of this meeting? Um, all the way down to continuing to ask why in certain scenarios. And that's been really helpful. Um, we put learners first is a really important one. Uh, just from a, our business, a lot of people in our space, it's, uh, you kind of lose sight that at the end of the day, our goal is to make someone better at their job. Uh, so that's one. Um, and then make time for life is another. So, uh, you know, as demanding as this can be, uh, you know, mental health outside of the, the job we realize is, is the core of life and this isn't the end all be all. So make yeah, time this- for life is important. This is just what we do to make money, right? If we can't have some fun along the way, none of this actually mattered in the first. Yeah, I mean, you're in the mountains looking outside, waking up uh, to the sunrise. I think you've got that figured out. It's pretty good. Um, I don't remember what it was. You actually said it was a muscle that you were trying to build. So you've got, oh yeah. as a, as a leader, I think we always have to try to grow ourselves. You know, our job as leaders is to grow people, but we also mm-hmm. have to grow ourselves. And if we think of at Lessonly that you're one of your core values of putting learners first, how do you focus on your own growth as a COO and president? How do you, and, and what have you focused on growing your skill set over the years? Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. Um, one of them uh, for me has been, uh, actually, this is the last core value I left out. Uh, we have difficult conversations. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I think it's part of my uh, going back to PI, you know, the, the high extroversion, which is me, um, tends to drive like, I get, uh, I've had to work out the kinks of myself drawing, um, satisfaction energy from like the, um, what do you want to say? The acceptance of someone else. Right. So, uh, difficult conversations have always been tough for me because it's like, Hey, I'd rather just kind of work around this, uh, not address it directly. Uh, don't want the person to feel bad. And, you know, that type of mentality has just been something, you know, and, and I honestly, my development tactics um, have been, a lot of them have been in partnership with Max. I mean, we have the type of relationship where we can tell each other things uh, from our perspectives sure. of, hey, this area, like you really need to focus on. So that's one he's really challenged me on and I've tried to get better at um, in, 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 in recent times. Yeah, it's interesting on on that whole trust thing that you just talk about too. I think it's really hard for a lot of CEOs to find the second in command that they have that implicit trust. You guys were lucky that you had that before mm-hmm. that relationship almost before you started working together, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I do. Like, I, I think like my view on, on kind of second in command stuff is, man, that CEO job is so tough, um, you know, for, for so many reasons. And you know, I got some advice from uh, some of the folks at OpenView that, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you kind of sit in a seat like mine or like yours, <clears throat> a lot of ways you got you to gotta die to your own ego. Uh, and you got to ask yourself, um, how, how, how am I useful to the CEO, to this business, uh, and kind of let the rest take care of itself. Um, and, and that type of like mentality uh, is one where, at the end of the day, uh, the, the people in the business who know the business are going to recognize the impact you're having. Uh, but so my mindset, you know, coming in every day is like, how can, how can I help him make that job a little bit easier? What can I be thinking about day to day that takes those, some of those like concerns and worries off of Max's plate in this case. Um, and, and then, you know, I think over time you just build the respect of each other. Uh, and what Max and I have really gotten to <clears throat> the driving motivation, I think for both of us, we talk a lot about is, Hey, we have two very different focuses of the business. He's product. I'm revenue. Like, I don't want to let you down. Like, Hey, we have a bad revenue quarter. I don't want to let you down. And if, if we have a great revenue quarter, he's like, man, I just, I just don't want to let you down on the product side. Like we need to be serving each other as best we can. And that together ultimately I think makes us both sharper and better. Um, and without that, I, it wouldn't be as fun, number one. Uh, but number two, I think it'd be really hard, really, really hard day to day if we didn't have that level of trust. For sure. We, we actually were talking about this at the CEO Alliance event recently as well. And it was um, that the COO's job is to make the CEO iconic. Yeah. And the, the CEO's job is to kind of play behind the scenes to, 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 to almost support us 
so the team realizes we're not all assholes. We just have to be the ones making all the tough decisions. Yeah. How, how do you guys support each other? Can you give us a specific example of how you might support each other, how mm. you make him iconic, and how he supports you as being the, the operations guy in the business with the rest of the team? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is focus and attention. Like, so, you know, kind of a personal passion of Max or kind of goal or lifelong goal was to write a book. And I've talked about the book already. Yeah. Um, that, that took six months. Uh, and it took him, you know, he's writing this four hours a day. Like he put a lot of time into this. Right. Um, and I think a tactical example of that was, you know, me having trust that, Hey, six months from now, this book's going to come out. It's going to be great for the business. It's going to be great for you personally, but you can imagine in those moments, uh, and Max wouldn't mind me sharing this. He's sitting there talking to me about like, man, I like almost feeling guilty for doing that. Right. And and the book came out six months later and now he's like, you know, he's on fire about it because it worked, but it was trust that that would work. So that's, I think me trying to do the things behind, which is, you know, run the business, keep all the revenue thing. Yeah. All the stuff that keep the business running. He doesn't have to worry about, and he's writing a book is kind of how to make that the iconic side. I think what Max has a gift for when it comes to kind of reciprocating that back to uh, me in this case, um, it's just appreciation. And that's really all I need. And, and that's you cool. know, whether that's a text that says, Hey man, I recognize, uh, you you just did a great job here or whether that's, uh, you know, what Max will do is occasionally write a note to our board and just kind of recognize something I've been doing. Like that, that's all I, that, that's all I need. Yeah. Like make sure you don't lose sight of the tough work we're doing here. And, you know, I save those things because, uh, he, he's great at, giving very specific compliments that make you feel like in those moments where you're like, man, can I really do this job? Well, you go back to those things and it really just helps you keep knowing that you, the person you're working with day to day, your partner has trust in you. And that's really how he that's reciprocates huge. it. So you, you guys have obviously done the predictive index um, profile with each other. Did you do your love languages as well? And is one of your love languages words of affirmation? <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, yeah, I think we both did it. I think we're both the same in that way. It's interesting. So we've we've started doing personality profiles, not just with our COOs that are in the CEO Alliance, but also the CEOs and then with their teams is the love language is actually a really bizarre one. But when you do mm-hmm. it for your team members and you understand their love languages, you understand how to either praise them, give them a hug, um, yeah. you know, give them a small little gift. And it's amazing how just understanding and the, the next one is they also came out with one recently called the apology language. Hmm. And how, how do people like out. to be apologized to? How do they like to be you know, either shown or told um, that someone feels bad about something? And that's a, a really interesting one inside the company too. Hmm. Right. I'm going to check that out. I like that. Yeah. Thank Two final questions. One is, I mean, you know, Lessonly clearly is one of these top kind of big emerging um, software companies. What do you guys as a company see as some of the top software platforms out there that, that the entrepreneurial mid-sized companies should be using? Oh man, great question. Yeah, random. Um, hmm. Let me think about it. And this what would be things like? we're using that we feel yeah. like are really yeah, accelerating what, the what business. What software tools do you use that are accelerating the business, helping you? And think about like all sides, right? From recruiting, interviewing, selection, onboarding, culture, training, operations, whatever. Yeah. Um, man, there, so... I'll go through a few sides. I'll I'll just mention a few Um, on the sales side. I've been so impressed with, uh, and their CEO is just in the office. So I'm, I'm a little bit recency bias here, but a tool called Dooley. Uh, It's a tool for salespeople. Uh, It started as just a way for salespeople to take notes and get them in Salesforce, which sounds simple, but is amazing. Uh, And now it's evolved to basically updating everything you need to in Salesforce in a much simpler, easier to use interface so that our sales reps don't spend day to day in Salesforce and we're getting accurate forecasts and stuff like that. Um, so that, that's one on the, the sales side on the product side, there's a company here in Indianapolis we've used on the, you mentioned interviewing, um, called woven. Um, and what they do is kind of engineering type recruiting, uh, an engineering recruiting platform that I don't know. I'm not well versed in, but I know the team has been super pumped uh, about the speed at which it helps them hire and get through like engineering tests. Um, and as well on the product side, our product leader loves a tool called office vibes, uh, kind of a, a pulse type tool for employee sentiment. Uh, but it does it kind of in an interesting way. So those would be three that come to mind. 
Those smaller. are cool. I haven't heard of any of those three. Does is Salesforce? I mean, you guys are are you a Salesforce partner? Uh, yep, we are. Uh, Salesforce had just launched a competing offering. I mean, it's been two years in the making, like most of their new products, and that's not a dig. Uh, but they did launch a competing offering called Trailhead. But we're still a Salesforce partner because obviously sales and service reps spend a lot of their day in, in Salesforce. So what's what's a good sales contact manager that actually works that you don't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. trying to get work? Like, what's a lean, simple? Do you, do you have an like serum? Yeah, I'm, I'm a raving fan. For the first four years of the business, we used one called Pipedrive uh, that I think a lot of people know now. Yeah. Um, so we, ha- we unfortunately had this like ceremony uh, funeral the day we had the uh, fake funeral. Uh, the day we had the CD-ROM, we put it in a uh, coffin and buried it. The day we had to get rid of Pipedrive because it was a very sad day for us. Uh, but why, why did you have to get rid of it? Mainly just reporting, honestly. If, if they could have like given us more like reporting, I think Salesforce just as we've grown like a sales operations and gotten yeah. more sophisticated with that stuff, just wasn't cutting it. But okay. All right, final question. If you were to go back to your 21-year-old self, because we would never listen to our parents or anybody else when we're 21, but if you could listen to yourself back then, what word of advice would you give yourself now that you now know to be true as a leader? What would you have wished you'd known earlier? Hmm. Hmm. Great question. 21. Wow. Um, man, I think one of the lessons I've learned, I'm a big, um, I'm a big fly fisherman, uh, a concept. I think it's coined in the fly fishing world, but it's called river hours. Um, and river hours is this idea that, um, you know, I'm going to walk out onto a stream. I'm going to spend eight hours fishing, uh, and I may not catch a single fish, Uh, But if you take a mindset of uh, those eight hours were river hours I just spent to get one step closer to a fish uh, is just a mind blowing shift for me. Uh, And, you know, so it's really a lesson in, hey, uh, what you're doing may seem insignificant, but the important thing is that you do it uh, and that you uh, realize you're getting one step closer to whatever it is you're reaching for is kind of the lesson in that. And I think uh, that's really been over the years, something I've learned that is, uh, kind of quelled some of the lack of patience I have and the, you know, frustration if it's not coming quickly. Um, and, and that's been a lesson over seven years of building a business. Obviously I'm always thinking like, why can't this go faster? Why can't this be better? Always comparing myself to the high flying, you know, huge fundraises, billion dollar companies. Um, and sometimes it's about the river hours and the time you're putting in and you're ultimately getting closer and you might not even realize it. That's very cool. That's a, it's a really cool rep. Connor Burt, president of Lessonly. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Cameron. That was great. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.